if that had happened, if we were flying over Europe or the United States, then we just simply divert. But, you know, back in 2004 and, you know, in over Western Sahara, uh, outside of radar contact, our options for diversion in the middle of the night are very, very limited. This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Grimace, and in this episode, you'll hear from Steve Giordano about visiting 50 different countries during a pandemic, almost running out of fuel over the Sahara, and how his team conquers logistics to meet one of the aviation industry's most niche demands. If you thought airlines were a complicated business, imagine this. On any given week, Steve Giordano might be piloting a South American Airlines aircraft registered in North America, coming out of a maintenance check in the Middle East and heading to Europe to enter service. That's a normal week in the aircraft test and transport industry. As an aircraft delivery, ferry, and test pilot, it's Steve's job to move these aircraft, and he flies somewhere between a million and 1.2 million miles a year to do it, making him one of the most frequent flyers we've had on the show. You'd think 2020 would have had a big impact on his work, and as you'll learn, it definitely did, but it didn't slow him down as he still made it to 50 different countries, a new one each week. This kind of globetrotting generates some very unique experiences and being constantly on the move makes Steve an authority on frequent travel in a way few people are. But I wanted to take it back to the beginning to hear where he got started. You operate in a very small jeans and t-shirt niche of aviation, so tell me about the first jump you took into the aircraft test and transport industry. Yeah, so uh, definitely very niche. Um, you know, the business in some ways, I think, as it stands today, I think we have a, we had a pretty pretty big hand in, in essentially creating it. I started doing this while I was employed at, uh, at at an air carrier. I was actually put at Allegiant. Yeah, so I guess I can disclose that. <laughs> yeah, I was basically a line pilot there, just just flying domestic ops in the MD eighty based in Las Vegas, and I happened to be flying with. Um, a guy who later became my partner in this venture, uh, Gloyd Robinson. He was a captain at the company and I was a first officer. And, and it was as simple as him asking me, you know, do I want to, do I want to go fly with him to Europe in a DC nine this weekend? You know, and of course, of course, always seeking a new adventure. I said, that sounds fun. Yeah, sure. Sign me up. I didn't know the industry existed and uh, just kind of jumped into it saying, it sounds like something fun to do. And from there, uh, I ended up accepting the assignment. I, we flew the trip over to Eastern Europe with the, with the DC-9. I'll never forget it. It was my first time flying as a pilot internationally, uh, with the exception of Canada, Mexico. It was really enjoyable, and it was something that I wanted to continue to do. So I made myself available um, the same way he did, and, and we flew as, as contract pilots, captains and first officers on DC-9s, MD-80s. So, you know, at that point, we, we just kind of proceeded forward in building a business. And I mean, that's a long story in itself. I read that you you recently ferried a, a 737 from Auckland, New Zealand to, to Bucharest, which is 10,700 miles in an aircraft with a range of 2,600. So how, how does that work? <laughs> what it normally is like and what it was like in this case during the times of the COVID pandemic are, are very different, <laughs> sure. as you could possibly probably imagine, right? Yeah. So what it's like is is it's, I mean, we get out to the airplane, we, we've, we've been preparing for the trip for uh, over a month, you know, we have a full-time dispatch facility, uh, trip planners, all of our, you know, we, we've gone over the flight plans. Um, we found, you know, pricing uh, with ground handlers and, and fuel suppliers and any service providers that we've needed. We validated and verified 
all the aircraft docks. We've submitted uh, for departure, overflight, and landing permissions, and we've gotten flight permit authorizations from the regulators along the route of flight. Mm-hmm. So once that's once that's all accomplished, we we set a departure date and we go, and uh, and we just go fly each leg and drink a lot of coffee and drink a lot of Red Bull and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so you're certified to fly ten different aircraft, among them the A340, which mm-hmm. is I've heard a lot of jokes about that, and uh, I heard that it doesn't really take off. Instead, it climbs so so slowly that the Earth just falls away underneath it. What's your experience <laughs> been like flying it? <laughs> That, that that's accurate for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the A three forty is 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 an interesting bird because it has three under or four, excuse me four undersized engines. They're yeah. CFM fifty six dash fives, so they're yeah, a they're variant of the yeah they're A three twenty engines, right? An A three forty is two A three twenties stuck together. You know, the problem with them is that they're they're tiny engines for the weight of that aircraft, and and yeah. you have four of them operating, and of course they're going to be more efficient than you know, than, than, a, than an A330 engine, but they run at, you know, 92, 93, 96% in cruise. So they're not fuel efficient. Mm. They're burning a ton of gas and uh, they're not really producing enough, enough thrust to, to give you the climb gradients that you get with aircraft with larger engines. Mm-hmm. You've been to 50 countries since the pandemic started, which is very hard for me to wrap my head around. How many countries <laughs> have you been to in total? Uh, pretty much all of them. <laughs> is that yeah, actually, I mean, is that accurate? So it's not hundred percent accurate. Obviously there's places that as an American, it would be very difficult or challenging to go. And I really wouldn't have the business necessity to go to. I, I've never been to Iran. I'd love to go there someday when mm. it's permissible. Yeah. Um, I've never, I've never been to North Korea. I'm not sure if I'd ever want to go there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe, <laughs> you know, um, you know, there, there are places that are sanctioned that I haven't been. There's a couple of countries in Africa that I haven't been to. Um, I have been everywhere in North, Central, South America. I've been to, I think I've been to every country in Europe. Um, wow. I, I have, you know, I've been, I've been pretty much everywhere, uh, pretty much everywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, a, this is a podcast about travel experiences and you've been pretty much everywhere, but often for such a short period of time, at least I assume. So do you actually... Yeah start to feel like you've been to a ton of places and don't need to go back? Or does your curiosity of the world kind of continue to grow? It definitely continues. I, I don't get to see enough of the world. Um, I mean, having seen it all from the air and having seen airports and, you know, the general vicinity around a hotel um, in most countries, yeah. it, it, it's not enough. You know, I, I've gone back and taken vacations with my family, you know, to, to countries that I've been to just you know, on business yeah. and, and have found so much more, obviously I, I get a little taste. We, we do, we do spend time in places, uh, when, you know, when, when we're essentially forced to, um, it, that typically comes with aircraft delays, uh, maintenance problems, things like that. I, I very yeah. rarely spend more than a couple of days in a, in a location unless there's something, you know, drastically wrong with the trip that we're operating. Yeah. But when, when we do get that opportunity, I, I, I often do, you know, try to make an effort, you know, at least pre-COVID to go out and, and, and taste the food and see the sights and, and get, a, get a little taste of the culture, you yeah, know. Good for you. Getting back to how much you have traveled during the pandemic, you're in the back of the plane as much as you're in the front because you need to get all over the world to pick up these planes, drop them off. So yeah, I want to talk about COVID a little bit in this respect because this seems like fairly irrefutable evidence that 
you know, flying is quite safe, actually being on the plane that is, and, and, um, you know, that's not going to give you COVID. So how has that experience been for you? I imagine you've flown so many different airlines over the last year. I have, um, you know, if you take me and I, and I have no background in, in any medical sense whatsoever. So all of my, all of my comments on, on the matter are purely observational, right? But, of course. um, have, having, having been somebody that I would guess is probably among the top less than a percent of, of, of traveling since the pandemic started, I, I would say that I, I'd probably be a pretty interesting case study on, on transmission. Now I'm very diligent about masking, uh, washing my hands, sanitizing, yeah. following, you know, all of all. And I have been from the beginning and, and I have not become lax at all, right. you know, but, but you. based on my experience, you know, I have not, I have not, you know, contracted COVID. Now yeah. I'm happy to say that I, that I've been vaccinated at this point. I got vaccinated last week, my first one. And nice. I have my, my booster on February 13th, which is exciting, but Sweet. you know, I, I've flown on a, a number of air, air carriers, U S and international. I've been on, um, Singapore, I've uh, been on Qatar, I've been on Emirates, I've been on Aeroflot, I've been on Delta, I've been on American. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, there, there are more uh, Korean. Uh, um, I, yeah. I would, it would have to think about it, but I've, yeah. I've been on most carriers. For the most part, everybody's, you know, processes are are similar. Um, and, and I generally fly in business class because you know it's it's we, we need we need to get rest before and after trips. It's just. Yeah. I'd be I'd be dead if I had to fly coach all over the world yeah. as much as I do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> How have you been able to visit so many of these countries while so few allow Americans in? How, yeah, how's that it's, been? it's it's an ongoing battle, and, and that that is that is by far the largest challenge that we're faced with at this point is is how to get to and from places. And and every time I see a trip, it's a clean sheet of music because the rules change every time for yeah. every location. Yeah. Whenever we're planning a trip in the planning phase, and as we get closer to departure day, we follow up with with those ground handlers to to refresh um, what what the current rules are and and how to be compliant with with those rules. Yeah. And they all differ. You yeah. know, a lot of times we have to get PCR tests in advance. They have to be within forty eight hours or seventy two hours or ninety six hours of passing through. Yeah. And how do you um, do that if you have to make seven stops on the way to Equatorial Guinea? <sighs> Yeah. Well, for the most part, once a trip, once a trip is in progress, we are considered active crew. So the rules, the rules in almost every country for active crew differ very drastically from what the general public um, experiences. And the reason for that is, is because we're not even going through immigration in a lot of places. So that makes sense. On our way from Auckland to Bucharest, you know, when I landed in Jakarta, um, we remained on the airplane and in the vicinity of the airplane. We're allowed to get out of the airplane and do a walk around. Um, you know, we're, we're allowed to stay on the airplane and, and program our FMCs and, and take our catering and uplift fuel and stuff like that. Once, once it got, you know, if we were to experience a mechanical there, there's no saying what, you know, what we'd be subject hmm. to. Most right. likely it would be a quarantine at a hotel for, for weeks. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you, know? you were quote unquote, never there. Right. Never there. Never yeah. there. Exactly. Now the, we, we were on a gen deck. So, you know, every time we operate between foreign countries, there's a general declaration. It's a standard form. Uh, we use a U.S. form, which is accepted everywhere. But uh, with the exception of being, you know, essentially through crew on the gen deck, we were never there by, you know, our passports weren't stamped. We didn't pass through any immigration office. We did overnight in Sri Lanka. And then obviously we had to go through immigration on that. 
Yeah. And the reason we chose Sri Lanka is because they had an existing process for uh, checking, which, uh-huh. you know, we, we got off the airplane. We were immediately filed into a, a converted area of baggage sorting at the airport where they had PCR tests. Um, they hmm. had a quarantine hotel uh, with a military escort to the quarantine hotel and from the quarantine hotel. And we were restricted to our rooms at all times while we were in the hotel. They've got amazing food there as well. So I can't imagine they, that, they do. that hurt. Okay. So Steve, I do this segment on the podcast called Explain That Gram. I go back through your Instagram and I pick, oh, out, pick out a photo <laughs> that I assume has has an interesting story behind it. Yeah. And that, that I'd like to hear more about. So I picked out this picture that you posted uh, a few months ago of a shattered window pane in the cockpit while while you're in flight. So and and from what I read, you said that this is fairly common. It happens about two to three times a year. So tell me about what it is like when you're hanging out up there at cruise and all of a sudden I'm assuming you hear a noise and the windows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So uh, a windshield shattering uh, is both common and uncommon. It's common in the sense that um, there, there are two specific type of, of windshield failures that, that can be experienced. Um, one would be an outer pane and one would be an inner pane. Aircraft windows are designed um, with, with two separate glass formations sandwiched together. And between those two windows, there's a, uh, a, a thermal conductive sheet of uh, some sort of composite plastic material that, that can transmit energy. And, and as, as everybody probably knows, Aircraft windshields, not the windows on the side of the airplane, but in the cockpit, those windshields are are heated. Um, not all of them, um, but all of the front ones, and yeah. in most cases, the clear views on the sides are heated. Right. Um, that is that serves both the purpose of anti icing um, and and also uh, creating enough enough heat that the wind that the glass remains pliable. Um, and, and can withstand impact like of birds and things like that. Right. So there's two reasons that the windshields are heated um, yeah. because because there is a space between those two panes. Um, you know, you're subject to a lot of outer pane failures due to moisture, uh, moisture getting into between the panes. And so huh. the most common failure there is an outer pane uh, failure and the outer pane is thin right? It's, it's a thinner piece of glass. It's not structural and it's not, of course it does its part in pressurization, but it, it's not the main pressure vessel of the aircraft. Yeah. The inner pane, which is thicker is, is what is subject to the, the, the rigors and the, you know, the, the forces of, of the aircraft being pressurized yeah. in flight. So in every case that I've ever flown an aircraft and experienced a windshield failure, it's always been an outer pane. Mm-hmm. However, um, you know, our training and the procedures when, when, when that, when, when a crack, when a, when a window failure occurs is to identify whether it's the inner or the outer before you can identify that you assume the worst, you assume it's an inner pain, an inner pain fracture. Yeah. And in that case, first thing you do is you put your oxygen mask on and you put your shoulder harnesses on, because if that window fails, it's going to get windy really <laughs> fast. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yes. So it would be human nature to have a little bit of an oh shit moment when that happens, though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, any pilot who's who's operating at cruise has got their shoulder harnesses off. They're probably in a semi reclined position. They're drinking a cup of coffee, maybe reading a magazine. Um, You know, you're you're not you're not, you know, expecting something that could, you know, could involve being sucked out of the window and (laughs) free falling through space. Right. right. Um, 
So, so, so of course, instantly it becomes, it becomes something that's, that's of concern. Yeah. So we're able to really quickly establish that it's an inner pain or an outer pain failure, mostly due to the fact that we're still in the airplane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, All right. We're so, good. So we're we, still here. <laughs> We're still here. That's like what they say on submarines, right? Like if, if you hear <laughs> if you hear the noise, then it's probably not fatal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I've never experienced a full a full failure of a windshield, um, and I don't know anybody who has at a flight level. I ha- I yeah. know people that have down low. Let's hope um, that but, trend continues. Yeah, but the reason it's common, right? An inner pain, an outer pain failure is because you know the airplanes that we've been operating in a lot of cases have been sitting in storage. For at least a period of a few months. Mm, um, so sure. whether they're whether they're sitting outside at an MRO or in storage somewhere, you're in a position where water and moisture can leak into the in between the panes, where uh, it could short out some of the wiring in the in the windshield heat. Mm. Um, and those are the things that lead to those failures. So yeah. So this kind of leads into my next point, which is that I read that you sometimes fly non-airworthy aircraft, and I, I have that in quotes because I guess the definition <laughs> is semi-flexible. So how's that work? Like, for example, I read that you once flew in a 737 that had been hit with an RPG. So it's, it's not, <laughs> not very, uh, it's unpressurizable, let's say. And right. so tell me about that. There's never an instance where we're going to get into and fly an unairworthy airplane. But the definition of unairworthy um, obviously varies, varies per application. So... When an aircraft is considered unairworthy by the standard of something that will fly that is technically unairworthy, um, it, it is it, what it means is it's unairworthy for uh, for typical revenue operations, right? So nine times out of ten, if I'm flying an airplane, um, it, it's going to be on either an SFP, an SFA, or a PTF, right? And and an SFP is basically a special ferry permit. That is issued by a DAR, a designated airworthiness representative that uh, has been appointed by the FAA to inspect an aircraft and declare it airworthy for an intended flight. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that, that process involves review, reviewing the aircraft's uh, maintenance status, um, uh, reviewing its records back to birth, and since its last major airworthiness event, um, you know, the last time it was C-checked, They'll look at its uh, uh, AD status, service bulletin status reports, and and determine what on the aircraft is preventing it from being issued a standard airworthiness certificate. So that's what happened with the 737 that got hit with the RPG, I assume. Uh, So yeah, that was an SFP. So in this case, the RPG went through uh, the fuselage of the aircraft, but it but miraculously didn't touch any of the structural frame bays, Mm -hmm. um, you know, of the aircraft, and so it was determined. You know, engineers that know way better than me have determined. Okay, well, as long as there's no pressurization on the aircraft, it will it will remain intact and can be flown. Yeah. Um, so, so the manufacturer issue issues guidance on that, and it has a validity of like ten days. Mm-hmm. And the air, aircraft is 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 deemed legal to fly between the listed points. So there's a lot of parties involved. That yeah. that airplane was coming from the Middle East and it was going to Roswell, New Mexico, if I recall. Hmm. And so every single country that the airplane overflew or landed in had to approve that that temporary airworthiness certificate. <laughs> wow. We're we're talking here at the end of January. Um I'm not sure exactly when this episode will come out, but for a couple of weeks ago, um a seven thirty seven crashed that you had delivered. And I, I wonder what it was like to learn that 
that a plane that you had flown and a plane you had delivered, you know, had, had, had met that fate. Yeah. The first thing, you know, obviously just like anybody else who's enthusiastic about the industry and, and, and has a focus on the industry. Um, anytime I hear of any type of crash or event, it immediately catches my attention. And I, and I immediately, uh, begin Googling every detail that I can get because, um, it's interesting, it's relevant. Um, and it, of course it applies to my operation. So any, any type of plane crash has always got my attention. Right. So there's, whenever I see something like in this case, you know, and, and it involves clients that, that are on my client list, I pay special attention. And so right. it, it was pretty fast that I, as soon as I saw that it was Sir Jaya Air, um, I, I have a lot of good friends there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, a, it's not a very large airline. And so first things first, the, the first thing that I did was I, I emailed my contacts to check in with them to see how they were doing and make sure you make sure everything that they're okay emotionally yeah. and everything yeah. else. This is the first aircraft, I think, that that has that have been involved in a fatal accident that I've flown. I, I think I, I'm not 100% sure of that. You know, it's it's a it's it's kind of scary to think about this accident. There's there's still so many questions, and and you know I'm not really privy to anything that that anybody else hasn't been privy to that's been released about about the accident. But right. I did talk to some folks at the airline, and I, I know what they know, and and I'll just go as far as saying. There's still a lot of questions yeah. and, and it's, it's really, it's really frightening. Hmm. Interesting. What are some of the most notable aircraft that, that you have flown notable f- for any reason? Um, well, let's see. I mean, I've flown, um, I've flown, uh, a, a C9, uh, a military DC nine, uh, once that was converted to a civilian registry, uh, at least, actually it was an experimental registry. Um, it was the C nine a that, that had flown, Laura Bush around Africa when she did that, uh, that tour down there, uh, years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, that, that was pretty interesting. It was configured. It was a combi aircraft that had a cargo door. Um, oh, yeah. and it also had some seats in the back. So that was pretty cool. Um, uh, I mean, I've flown a lot of the aircraft that have been used in like presidential campaigns because those are usually ACMI leases, a whole different type of lease, uh, like BBJs you know, and stuff. Yeah, they're they're not BBJs. They're just 737, 700s, and 800s that have been painted and configured. Maybe they're operated by Swift Air or uh, you know one one of the one of the other ACMI charter providers out there. Um, so I've I've flown some of those. I've I've flown. Um, uh, let's see. I mean, I've you know I've fl- I've flown uh, the A340 that came out of Sri Lankan that was destroyed during a terrorist attack. It was partially destroyed uh, during the first attack. Yeah. And and then it was rebuilt and went back into service. And, you know, that was, that was an interesting case because that airplane had a lot of modifications done to it and, and, and it was being parted out after it was taken out of service. And so there was a, there was a lot of detail uh, paid to, to the, the parts on that aircraft, what was going to be able to be resold and what was part of, you know, the original insurance claim when, when it was damaged. Hmm, Interesting. You know, so we, we've flown some neat stuff like that. We've flown some head of state aircraft. Oh, that's cool. I'm assuming those are pretty well equipped on the inside. And you know, you, you don't yeah. often get to see like what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. I mean, I've seen uh, head of state. I, I haven't flown, but I've seen head of state triple sevens and seven eight sevens, wow. uh, which are just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, just unbelievable to to a, a layman like myself. You yeah. walk into and I've flown a, a lot of business uh, con- configured A320s, ACJs, BBJs, uh, converted MD-80 VIP aircraft. 
um, they're, they're awesome. I mean, it's, it's really cool what you're able to do with individual STCs uh, of interior when, configurations. When you think about some of those crazy head of state aircraft that you've flown, are there any particular interior details that really stood out to you that you can share? Yeah, we we uh, we were involved uh, in in a in a project once. This one, we actually didn't fly this airplane, but I but I got to tour the inside of it. Um, there was an A three forty configured in a head of state configuration that belonged to a royal family in the Middle East. I'm not even sure which one it was, mm-hmm. um, and it it actually had a a um, a, a bed. Uh, in the main sleeping quarters, in the main sleeping berth um, for the head of state, I guess, uh-huh. that was on some sort of a gyroscopic stabilizing assembly. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, wow. And so, so, so when the aircraft was at different pitch attitudes and, and experiencing turbulence, the bed actually maintained level for whoever was sleeping in it so they didn't go sliding off the back of it. A gimbal-stabilized <laughs> bed. That yes. is incredible. Yeah, wild, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's that's awesome. As the story goes, the owner had had satin sheets when the aircraft was delivered, and at the on the first takeoff roll, uh, he fell to the floor and said, "I don't want that to happen again." And so <laughs> it had to be engineered specifically and STC'd for this individual, which is pretty awesome when you think about what what the engineering you know what it took to to, to create and certify something like that. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, when I said that about my you know private bedroom on my triple seven uh, people just looked at me like that was crazy <laughs> hey if, if, if you have the money there's a way to get it done yeah so what are some things that you get to do that a commercial pilot couldn't like i mean imagine you don't have to keep the cabin door locked uh, or nope. perhaps on like a long delivery you could probably just hop back into the cabin and take a nap in a first class seat if you weren't you know in charge of flying it during that period of time is it is that possible for sure, for sure. Yeah, we often fly with a heavy crew of three or four pilots on on the really long legs, and so the standard practice is one pilot will go to the back and sleep in the business class cabin, or uh, sleep in a hammock in the cargo pit, um, or sleep on a cot in in a cargo compartment. Um, and sometimes these sometimes these long haul aircraft actually have crew quarters, right? Crew berths. Right. So we do, we do do that. The cabin door stays unlocked. One of the things that we do that commercial pilots don't do is we cook our own food. <laughs> yeah. So there's no, there's no, there's no flight attendant on board. We're, we're very course. well versed and, and trained in the operation of uh, the ovens. I guess a lot of cargo pilots uh, will, will argue that point. They uh, make sure. their own food too. Yeah. But yeah, we use the ovens. Uh, we use the uh, chillers. Um, we, we, sometimes use the coffee makers. Yeah. <laughs> um, we do that. We do, uh, you know, we, we have to, you know, as far as, as far as pre-flighting, our pre-flights are a lot more extensive than, than your typical airline pre-flight. Uh, every, every aircraft we get in is different. We brief things differently. Uh, we inspect different things. Um, so yeah, that's, that's very different. Uh, you know, we fly in, in jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that, that, probably that's the best quite part different for you. I assume I have a beard. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Things like that. So no doubt. Sleep must be a real sticking point on these long missions. Like you said, you're I mean, you fly halfway across the world, you pick up a plane, then you fly it for twenty four, thirty six, forty eight hours straight, basically. So how do you how do you manage sleep and ensure that you're you're rested? Because you're not restricted by the traditional crew time and duty. So how's that work? Yeah, yeah. For, you know, from a personal level, just having done this so long, I have a process, and and I, I would assume that all of my pilots do as well. Um, when I'm preparing for a trip, depending on where it is, I'll start I'll start living my life 
two days in advance um, to, to, to reflect where I'm going to need to be in my sleep cycle. Yeah. So if I'm flying something out of Asia, I'll, I'll stay up late for a couple of nights before I leave and, and I'll sleep late during the day um, and, 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 you know, operate on minimal sleep. And then I'll prepare myself so that I can take so that I can really knock myself out with some melatonin on the flight on the way over to the Far East or yeah. Australia yeah. or wherever I need to go to get my rest there. So I, I do plan each trip and my sleep cycles uh, usually a few days in advance, and I and I do what I can to try to try to really get in front of of that. Yeah. And and if you know if there's a situation where we need to rest and it's not planned. We do what we have to do. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll delay an airplane, you know, I, we'll take rest. My, my follow-up question was about jet lag. So that's really interesting that you kind of bank your sleep a little bit and move your schedule around to, to try and anticipate those those sorts of things. You you could fly a, a traditional pilot, at least in the U.S., and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, is limited to 1,000 hours a year. But you, you, could fly, you could fly more than that. Isn't that right? I could, uh, yes, and and any pilot that's limit, you know, at the airlines, they're only limited in their in their time as flying for part one one twenty one, right? Sure, so, sure. if if a pilot owns a Piper Cherokee um, and they fly, you know, in their private time and their personal time, it is up to them to you know to disclose their flight time outside of part 121 uh-huh. to their airline so that it is tracked now if you exceed a thousand hours you can you can exceed a thousand hours if you're flying under part 91 or you're you know flying under you know a different a different set of regulations yeah. but um you, you just you're just limited on what you can do under part 121 which Got is it. why it's difficult for airline pilots to to have a side gig where they're doing this stuff yeah. um, if they're not tracking their time and, and advising their their uh, scheduling team at their airline to keep track of of their non AOC time. Got it. So, like like I said earlier, you you visited fifty countries in the past year, uh, and one of them was Afghanistan. You were it sounded like you were dropping off and picking up uh, an aircraft there. So, what was that like flying into a I suppose an active war zone? you're out of military base, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so in that particular case, we were, um, I, I, I have to kind of think about what I can, can and can't say on that because obviously we're bound by confidentiality in some cases, sure. but, um, this, this was a, a repositioning flight for a government contractor. Um, and, and we do have existing relationships and contracts with government contractors and governments, um, you know, to the extent possible. So, so in this case, we were we were operating uh, to and from a military installation. Uh, we we were at Bagram Air Base, and yeah. um, it was cool. It was very interesting. I, I have a military background, and the pilot I was with on that is also he was an Air Force pilot. Uh, he was he was an F sixteen pilot mm-hmm. uh, for twenty years, and and so it was all it was all the same for him. He was actually it was really great to be with him on that trip because um, he was more versed in the process, the procedures, and the processes. But we had to get, um, you know, we had to coordinate with the military beforehand, um, be assigned discrete call signs. And, you know, we had to communicate uh, in accordance with what their regulations are. It was I felt very safe at all times there. You know, I mean, it's it's a heavily fortified military installation. Yeah. Um, And they knew we were coming. (laughs) Yeah. You didn't want to just go in. You didn't want to just show up in the middle (laughs) of the night at Bagram. Yeah, this is Maverick on approach here. <laughs> we definitely hell? showed up in the middle of the night, but uh, they they were expecting us, and uh, they you know we had talked about what you know what what to do beforehand, what we needed to comply with, and and 
Uh, we made sure that we were compliant and we had a full understanding of everything beforehand. Bagram is a very interesting place to fly into uh, just, you know, from a topography standpoint. Mm. Um, For people who don't know what Bagram is, will you explain? Yeah, Bagram is an Air Force base, a U.S. Air Force base, um, base of operations in Afghanistan. It's situated uh, north of Kabul. Uh, I don't know the exact mileage. I think in the neighborhood of about 100 miles, maybe a little less, maybe 50 miles. I don't know, somewhere in there north of Kabul. Um, It is a very secure, very well-lit military Air Force uh, installation. Um, I believe that all the branches operate in and out of Bagram. Um, Very long runways and so forth. So yeah, we were we were bringing an airplane into Bagram um, and then pulling an airplane out so that it could go into maintenance mm-hmm. uh, and then eventually go back to Bagram. But that that Air Force base is situated in a valley between very, very, very high mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's so close to the terrain that as you're coming in from the east, uh, excuse me, coming in from the west, uh, pointed east, um, you have to maintain a really high altitude until you cross those mountains and then you have to fly, you know, a, a very tight circuit in descent in order to uh, essentially, you know, be clear of terrain and in a position to land with a normal descent rate wow. to the runways. So, so, so we briefed that approach beforehand, um, and and it was exactly as expected, uh, and and quite interesting. It was it was a cool one. Yeah, yeah. So, what are some of the craziest things that have happened? I read that you you had experienced some sort of fuel issue while flying over the Sahara in a, in a DC eight at night. DC nine. Yeah. Um, that was, that was interesting. That was a, that was a compounding set of problems that became a fuel issue that, that, that occurred early in my career that of doing this. Um, this was before jet test was born. It was when I was operating as a contract pilot, but we had a DC nine thirty that we were ferrying out of, uh, out of the United States and bringing it into uh, Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. And um, we we had a situation where, and it was the day before Christmas Eve. This was back in maybe 2004, 2005. Um, we had a situation present. We were at cruise. We had just landed. Um, well, we had just taken off from Morocco. Uh-huh. And we were en route to our next fuel stop. Uh, it was Casablanca to Dakar. And you know, if you look at a map and you look at that route of flight between Casablanca and Dakar, you'll see a lot of nothing. Um, you know, you're over Western Sahara, Mauritania, there's, there's just vast expanses of desert (laughs) down there. Not a lot of airports, um, of the airports, not a lot of them are friendly. Um, and it was the middle of the night. And in this case, we were up at, at, uh, 27,000 feet and we got an indication that our right main landing gear was, it, it went red. Right. It just it just came on that our right main landing gear was red. Um, And as soon as we got that indication. Yeah, we were having an issue. You know, the first thing that any pilot does is they go to their QRH. Right. Um, Quick reference handbook. And um, it it gives you, you know, kind of the QRH is like a small binder that is like an abbreviated checklist of how to. Oh, shit book. Yeah, it's the oh, shit book. It's you reconcile problems with. With minimal effort. Yeah. Um, so, so the QRH, I don't remember what exactly it had us do, but it became apparent that it was not just an indication quickly because we were able to start detecting vibration. Oh, wow. Um, and that was, and the vibration, what it, what it ended up being was that the landing gear uplatch failed on the uh, physically separated and all the hydraulic fluid from the B system over the course of about a minute and a half um, 
uh, cycled out of the out of the reservoir, and we we had no more uh-huh. hydraulic fluid Whoa. at all. So so the 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 physical barrier that keeps the landing gear retracted on that the the right main landing gear separated from the aircraft and um hydraulic fluid drained out of that point and so what happened is that that right main landing gear started lowering into the slipstream um and it started creating a lot of drag and it, it eventually led to a situation where we believe that it was probably hanging at about 45 degrees outside of the airplane yeah you know, that drag kept us from being able to maintain altitude. So oh, wow. the airplane ended up having, yeah, the airplane had to descend. We weren't able to maintain altitude up to about, I believe it was 21,000 feet, 20, 21,000 feet. Hmm. And, and that was the point where we had enough engine power to, to be able to maintain altitude. And the thing to realize is, right, any airplane, uh, jets included, are more fuel efficient as they are higher. at a higher altitude. Right, less air, less oxygen, less fuel required. Yep. They burn more efficiently. So, as you lose altitude, you lose range um, and endurance, um, and and then you pair that with the, the additional drag of the 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 gear hanging out. Yeah, you you have yourself a, a major problem compounding. Yeah. So, in that case, we you know we were out there doing calculations, mental calculations, had calculators out. We're you know we're going through the books. Um, but there's not really data for, 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 you know, what kind of drag <laughs> yeah, is no going to be created. So we, 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 yeah. So, so really what we had to do is we had to create our own data set based on what the aircraft's actual performance was in that case. Huh, yeah. And if that had happened, if we were flying over Europe or the United States, then we just simply divert. But, you know, back in 2004 and, you know, in over Western Sahara, uh, outside of radar contact, our options for diversion in the middle of the night are very, very limited. Yeah. So it got to the point where we we needed to kind of decide whether we were going to pick an airport and go to it, or whether we were going to continue to the destination, or whether we were going to turn around. Yeah. And based on all the factors, you know, what we did was we looked at what our fuel burn was over a ten minute period in the configuration. Was it trending worse? Uh, what was our actual fuel burn? what would be our fuel burn for the remaining flight time at the altitude we were at. Uh-huh. And very simply, it was that fuel burn in excess of what we had on board. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, the indication was that we would be able to land with about a thousand pounds of fuel remaining. And, and we kept checking those numbers as we went. And from what I, from what I remember, we had about a little over an hour of flight time from the time that that occurred. So, you know, by the time by the time we figured out how much endurance we had, we were really within about probably forty five minutes of the destination. Yeah, and so it made sense to just to, to head there. Right, and we did, and we stayed as high as we could as long as we could. Um, we manually extended the gear, we landed, and the aircraft went into maintenance once we got to Dakar to repair the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and we landed with I think I think we had six hundred pounds on board. When we landed, I mean, that's not even enough for really a go around. So I was about to say, yeah, if you could contextualize that, not enough for a go around. That's not much fuel. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of getting into the the end of the podcast here. A couple of things, hopefully just some, some quick answers, but of course, elaborate if you, if you feel it's necessary. Airbus or Boeing? Uh, I personally like flying the Airbus. (laughs) I prefer, I prefer Airbus. Yeah. Yeah. But from a, uh, that's, let me, let me give a caveat. Um, I, on long hauls, I definitely prefer the Boeings and, uh, first, so we're talking wide bodies. I'd be on a triple seven or a seven, eight, seven over an A330. Yeah. The triple seven for sure. Um, 
as far as flying goes, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd rather fly the 777 than anything else out there. Um, but if we're talking narrow bodies, I like Airbus over Boeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about your least favorite aircraft to fly? Hmm. <laughs> I guess that's kind of subjective. My, my least favorite airplane to fly um, at this point, I'd have to say, is probably the 737 Classic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, it, first of all, it's the most common airplane that I fly. Yeah. I mean, I like it because it brings in a lot of revenue to the company. Sure. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's the 737s. Uh, people who follow me on on Twitter know my my relationship with the 737. Um, I love it in that it 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 pays all my bills. Yeah. Right. We we move a lot of them. Yep. Um, I hate it because I bang my head on the overhead. It's slow. <laughs> it's noisy. It's yeah. it's it's the same thing that I see every day. There's a lot of stops required. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know the, the the Airbus is a more comfortable and and more advanced airplane in every sense. Copy that. How many how many miles did you fly last year? Do you keep track? Uh, and I only keep track based on like my frequent flyer programs, right? Okay. I did. Uh, yeah, I I think on American, I did in the high two hundred thousands of actual miles flown. I mean, if you had to guess how many miles you flew, yeah, because it has to be at least um, four to five times. You know, just what you flew with American. I would venture to guess all my airline travel was, was, I I did actually go back recently and figure that out. I I think I was at like six or 700,000 miles of airline travel. And then, you know, using the typical travel to crew operations ratios, I mean, it's got to be over a million two, a million three, I would say last year. Well, I interviewed Tom Stuker, who's basically the world's most frequent flyer and you're, you're giving him a run for his money. (laughs) <laughs> with, the, with those really? numbers yeah i mean he what are, what are his numbers well he's flown 25 million lifetime miles but oh wow but it's kind of averaged between since he really got going it's probably averaged between like 700,000 and 1.2 million in a year although a couple years ago he flew 1.5 which was just nuts um that is nuts yeah and that, but i mean that's all as a passenger um i mean you could never even do that really as a as a pilot um you just no, you'd be, no. You'd be limited. I, I mean, I mean, I guess you you could. I mean, I if I flew twice as often as I did, you know, I think I'd probably be close to those numbers as a pilot, yeah. right? I mean, if I flew half a million to six hundred thousand miles as a pilot last year, I mean, and we don't we don't actually keep any track of like distance or miles, right? It's a totally you know, trivial number. It is. It is. I, I think if I, you know, I think that if I, I think I could have flown twice as much last year and probably hit those numbers as a pilot. Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> but I'd probably be divorced right now. Yeah. And that would suck. So how quickly do you fill a passport? <laughs> ah, funny thing. I, I sent my primary out. So I have two. Ah, yes. Um, you would need to have two. You're like the perfect candidate for that. Perfect candidate. Yeah. I, the reason we have two mainly is um, so that we could send one off for visas and still be able to travel on the other one. I mean, there's really no other reason other than that. Yeah. Um, there are some conveniences, like, for example, I'll, you know, Israel is very curious as to where you've been. Yeah. Um, so when I'm, when I'm flying in and out of Israel, it, it's usually a little easier if I use one that has less Pakistan on it and yeah. less Afghanistan yeah. and, you know, and less of that. Um, but they're so smart over there. They know anyway, <laughs> somehow yeah, right. they already know where you've been. Right. 
it's it's really it's really about about visas. So I have a primary and a secondary. Uh, per the regulations uh, at the U.S. Department of State, you can have a primary passport is valid for ten years. I get the long one, the the big book. Yeah, of course. Um, a secondary passport is only valid for four years. Yeah. Um, I have replaced my passport, my primary every five years, and this year I just sent out. I, I actually or last week. I sent out my primary because it's completely full and I only got four, four years out of it. Huh. What, what's like one of the most unique places you've gone through customs? The, my, my, my most unique customs experience actually happened uh, last year uh, and, and it was in the U.S. And it was when I came back to JFK after having delivered uh, the, set, the first Air Seal A320 mm-hmm. to Pakistan. Um, and we came back into, into JFK and we were detained <laughs> by, by customs. And we were there for an hour and a half while they asked every possible question known to man about why we could have been in Pakistan. Yeah. Um, they wanted to look at pictures in our phones. They wanted, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not, but I mean, as you know, just as a, as a traveler, it, it was, it was, it was both, uh, concerning and, um, also, it gave me some confidence that these guys are out there actually paying attention to who's coming in and out of the country. You yeah. know, that's, that's yeah. kind of good to know, wow. I guess. Yeah. So you got grilled on that one. Got grilled on that one. Um, in Russia a few years ago, I've, I've gone through customs um, in, in Siberia, um, in, in Saka, uh, Yakutsk, Magadan, uh, Petropavlovsk, Anadir, those places. Um, they... I've been through customs in all of them, and I don't remember which which particular instance this this was that I'm remembering. But I landed one place in Russia once, and they knew every detail about like people in my family, my wife's name, my mother's name, um, and they were asking me they were asking me stuff about it. Whoa, um, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was kind of that was kind of strange. And and you know, in retrospect, when I filled out a Russian visa application. Um, again, recently, which I have to do every two or three years because yeah. I, I keep those visas. Um, I did realize that I put a lot of that information on those visa applications. Okay. So maybe that's where they got it. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. You obviously, and you've said so, fly a ton of different airlines in the back of the plane. Which ones do you look forward to flying with the most? Um, so hands down, I, I love I love this question because, uh, you know, it, it's it's subjective, but of course. Uh, you know, th- there are there are some standouts, right? So number one, Emirates First is is the best quality service that you can get anywhere in the world, period. I don't care. I'll argue this point with anybody. <laughs> there is nothing better better on long haul than Emirates First. And, um, I you know, I owned a Citation. I've traveled uh, around the world on business jets since COVID. I mean, we chartered a Falcon 7X from Southern California to Australia last year. Which was awesome. Wow. Yeah. I got to tell you, Emirates First is a better ride. Yeah. I mean, it just is. A lot more space, especially <laughs> if you got a packed packed uh, Falcon. Ah, better food, better space, better, you know, just a better internet. I mean, yeah. just, uh, it, it's unbeatable. I mean, Emirates, they have done an incredible job with that product. And on the A380, you know, you can take a shower. Yep. I mean, it, it, it's most guys that I know, people, most people that I know that that own, and I know a lot of folks that, that have, G5s, G650s, Falcons, but you yeah. know, they fly Emirates first if they have to go somewhere long haul yeah. and their crew will fly, move the airplane. It's just, <laughs> it's just, it's that good of a project yeah. product. Um, 
So as far as hands down the best, that's it. Um, the, you know, runners up uh, business class, the best business class worldwide is, is Qatar Airways uh, Q Suites. Yes. Um, as, as far as business class Don't goes, me. it is Q Suites is the yeah. best. Yeah, I assume you've been. <laughs> yeah, I actually just published a video today about my experience flying flying it. It's incredible. It's awesome, I mean, it's right? It's basically like a first class. It's better than some first classes. It is. And the elbow room from that little space in the seat next to you is just, I mean, it's it's awesome. I hate I hate sleeping with my elbows pressed to my rib cage, yeah. you know? Yep. The food is also incredible. That. And if you've got the middle yeah. if you've got the middle um two seats where you can put the divider down. I mean, you've got so much space for the, the two of you if you're flying with a companion. Yeah, the couple's sweet. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I flew it with a buddy of mine from college, so it was, it was a fun. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome, man. It, it's The Q suites are awesome. I can't wait till they put more of them on the rest of their fleet. Um, I, I also am partial to Qatar, and in some cases, I'll take Qatar over uh, over that first-class Emirates because of One World. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm concierge key on American. Sure. Um, I try to remain as loyal as possible to one world carriers. Um, you know, American is my hometown carrier. Yeah. So Qatar is, is I get, I get American miles. And, and yeah, so right. in some ways that's, that's worth it for me uh, right there, even over the comfort of, of being on Emirates. Yeah. Qatar close second. And then as far as us carriers go, in my opinion, the, the best, premium product of us carriers right now is the american Airlines 787 business suite sweet yeah for sure i haven't flown yeah. that one but from everything i see about it, it seems like a great product yeah it's great i mean you know I, I i've flown on the delta neos i've been on the delta a350s it's a nice product uh, i find the leg room to be not quite as good I, I i think that the american 787 is comparable with most international premium products out there on the 78 yeah you know what this is kind of a <laughs> I think in any other podcast, this would be a really lame question, but I'm really genuinely curious. What luggage do you use? Yeah. So I have, I, I don't have an easy answer for this. I have, I have different luggage for different types of trips. That makes sense. <laughs> I guess I probably would too, if I were you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, if I'm flying a dash eight and I'm not getting off in any hotels, I'm happy to stuff all my, my stuff in a backpack and just, and just run around in a backpack. Yeah. Um, but, but my standard is, you know, I have the, uh, the, uh, luggage works, you know, standard stealth 22 pilot bag. Um, I actually got, I got the uh, carbon fiber version of it when it came out last year. I love it. It's a little lighter than the, the aluminum one. Um, the thing that's awesome about that is, is that I, I've yet to really reach a limit as to what you can put in it. I mean, you can just keep stuffing things in it. And as long as you have enough, the body weight to hold the flap close, it zips, you know, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> it's durable. So I use that. And then I have one of their, uh, I have one of their, uh, electronics totes that I throw my laptops and all that stuff in. Um, I, I, I also have some smaller to me bags that I'll use if, I, if it's a shorter trip. And then I do a lot of traveling for commercial purposes. So I'll go to conferences, I'll go to ISTAT and air finance mm -hmm. and MRO. And in those cases, I, I try to not look like a pilot. I try to, you know, carry some to me luggage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anything in particular that you make sure you bring with you aside from, you know, clothes and toiletries, all that stuff, but like kind of any, any tips to help people, when they are packing for these long haul trips? These are great questions. You know, I, I often think about it when I'm on a trip and I say, you know, if I, if I were just a regular traveler on a trip and I travel once a year, uh, there are things that I've learned, you know, this, if this format is going to get that out there, I'm all for it. Yeah. So, um, one, two, there's a few things that I carry. Uh, for one is I, I got, I have a life straw. So 
Huh. I am, yeah. So get on Amazon. I think you can get it for like 20, 30 bucks or something like that. It's literally, it's a, it's a tube, you know, it's about a foot long and it's got a cap on it. And it makes, you know, I mean, in the pictures that people are drinking out of muddy creeks and I don't know that I would do that. Yeah. And, and I started, I was actually curious on an overnight one night, I started Googling it. And of course, the first thing that comes up is, can you drink your own urine? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, let's find out. No, we, I'll answer your question. You cannot drink your own urine. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the thing that's good about it is, is um, I drink, I've always been a hotel sink drinker. I, yeah. You know, people think I'm a sick, I'm a sick pup for it, but <laughs> you know, I'll go to a hotel. If there's no bottled water, I'll turn on the tap and I'll drink out of the paper cup that's wrapped. Yeah. Right. I've always done that. Um, and, and, and then I started reading a little bit about, <laughs> about some of the, the, the systems, the plumbing systems in different places. And it's not always advisable to do that. Yeah. So um, with a life straw. The, the it, thinking being behind doing that, right, is you kind of, you're kind of exposing your gut to some of those bacteria, hoping that you, that won't be an issue if you do that enough. Is that, is that what you're thinking is? <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I, you know, I, I sleep uh, in hotels. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just not grossed out by the possibility of drinking dirty water. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I grew up in, I grew up in Philly, you know, I, I grew up drinking tap water. I never had a fancy fridge that produced drinking water until I was an yeah. adult. I, I, you know, I didn't drink bottled water. I just always been a tap water guy. Yeah. So, um, so drinking out of a sink has never really been uh, a fear of mine, but, um, you know, carrying this life straw makes it easy because, you know, yeah, not to be an, an advertisement for that, you fill up your cup through a, a tap, you drink out of it and you know, you're getting filtered water. Yeah, so smart. that's, that, that's a good thing that's to a carry. Great one. Um, I, yeah, it's 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 definitely it's helpful. I carry a laundry bag uh, to separate my dirties from my my cleans because my dirty stuff after being awake for twenty hours on an airplane gets pretty nasty. Yeah, so yeah. I always carry a laundry bag. Right. Um, and then the other thing that I picked up recently is uh, there are a few versions of this, but there are additional door locks that you can kind of supplement um, your your door lock in the hotels that you're staying in. Huh. And we we do stay in you know in. in I've stayed in some pretty primitive hotels in different parts of Africa, yeah. in Brazil, and you know, kind of in the bush. And I've certainly been worried about you know getting kidnapped or having my you know you know being abducted or whatever. Yeah. The, the thing I carry a I carry a, a thing. I don't remember what exactly what it's called. If I have it in my drawer. I don't have one in my drawer here, but it's 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 like a, an extra door lock that you that you put on um, on the bolt. And then mm. you close the door and it reinforces the frame and it gives it some additional stability. And it also creates like a chain opening. So you can open the door, open the door like three or four oh, inches smart. and it's a little more secure. So I carry one of those, cool. carry both my passports. I carry a sat phone. Um, oh yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, I carry a lot of those, those, uh, those uh, blank Gendex just in case I get to a place and there's a, you know, and I need to create a Gendex real quick. I can fill out one of those. Yeah. What do you use your airline miles for? Do you use them? No, I, I use them. Um, my family loves to travel. I've got four kids and a wife. Um, you know, we, my kids are, I grew up not traveling at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of the reasons I'm in this business is from the time I was, you know, can remember really. Um, I, you know, I've always been super jazzed about traveling, seeing new places, um, different airplanes and so forth. So 
that's how I got into aviation. And, and so my dream from the time I was a little kid was to, was to see the world. Um, I use my miles to, to, to take family vacations and trips, you know, and, and they all appreciate it. That's great. Steve, when you, when you think back on all the places you've been and you've been to some amazing places, some very unique places that very few people have, have ever been to, um, at least from a tourism perspective, what impact has that travel had on you? And what impact do you believe it has on the world? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think it's so important to, in order to have objectivity, you know, to judge others and to judge certain you know, situations and scenarios based on that objectivity. I think seeing the world really gives you, number one, an overall sense of how insignificant, you know, our little bubbles all are. Right. I mean, we all live in this this routine, this daily bubble where we go about our grind. And even me, I mean, I, you know, I, I go to, you know, 70, 80, 100 countries in a year uh, and people are like, wow, you know, it's I, I live in my bubble. My bubble just travels, <laughs> you know, so I see the same kind of people. I see this airline people. I see, you know, I'm not subject to the you know, I've been to Afghanistan, but I'm not subjected to the struggles of the people in Afghanistan. The reality is it's a big world. There are billions of little bubbles of people operating in their little bubbles. And it takes a lot to really view outside of your bubble and, and kind of realize there's no better classroom than the planet. That's Steve Giordano. You can find him on Twitter at JTTSteve or taking a nap in a hammock in the cargo bay of a freighter. If you enjoyed the show or learned anything from it, it would be supremely awesome if you'd share it with someone who might find it interesting or rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps other people find these episodes, and I really appreciate it. As always, feel free to reach out on social with any questions or comments. Once again, I'm your host, Ian Grimace, wishing you smooth travels. Peace.